Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Sarah, I'm Assistant Editor at Prospect and today I'm delighted to be joined by award-winning author and journalist Madeline Bunting and Ross Moody, a research analyst at the Centre for Progressive Policy to discuss poverty in Britain's coastal towns and how our nostalgic associations with the seaside can serve as both a trap and a refuge for people living there. We're discussing this today because of a really excellent extract of Madeline's new book, The Seaside, England's Love Affair, that you can find in the latest issue of Prospect magazine. First of all, Madeline, can you just tell me a bit about what made you decide to write this book and to select the extract that you did for us to run in Prospect? So it was a chance comment, I think, actually, from my sister. I grew up in North Yorkshire and... Uh, our kind of seaside trips were always to the North Yorkshire coast, Whitby, Scarborough, and a very, very little tiny hamlet called Runswick Bay. But Scarborough was the really exotic uh, place. Um, As a child, I can't really describe to you just how exciting it was to go to Scarborough. The the donkeys, the ice creams, the the chilli breezes, the cold water, the, the fish and chips. And my sister had been through it walking, and she said, something's happened. Something's happened to the town. It looked so sad. And um, it was that kind of contrast between my memory of it as absolutely glamorous and exciting with um, what she was describing. And I thought, I've got to see this for myself. And it triggered a sort of wake up call, really, because we know there's an issue with poverty and slightly shabby seaside towns. But it was kind of like, actually, do we really understand what has been going on in those towns for the last 40, 50 years? And, um, and, And where is the real, you know, where is there a good account of that, uh, because I thought, you know, I know a lot about the process of deindustrialization, the ending of the coal mines uh, in places like County Durham, and you know, I, as a journalist, I've written about that um, and thought a lot about it, and I just thought, actually, this is a sort of untold story. And what was your experience like of the reporting? How did you go about it, and and were people in these communities open to speaking to you? So um, as, as always, you know, you, you pitch up and you start doing box pops, you know, kind of standing, stopping people on the street. Can I talk to you? And you get all sorts of reactions. Some people who don't want to talk, some people can't stop talking. And in a way, it's the most uh, nerve wracking. Funnily enough, I still find it nerve wracking, um, but also uh, deeply satisfying uh, points of the research. 
I, I love listening to people. I really do. The, and particularly the way people talk about place, about where they live and what their feelings are about that place. Uh, so, you know, take two conversations I had in Clacton, one with, with a, a lady who was surrounded by her children and her father-in-law and they're coming and going. And, you know, she, I said to her, where are you from? She said, oh, I'm not from here. I'm from Holland. And immediately I thought, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're Dutch. No, no, no. Holland by sea, which is a reminder, of course, that that Essex coastline has always had a very close geographical association with, you know, just over the other side of the North Sea. But um, she loved it. To her, it was a wonderful place. She'd le- she'd arrived there aged 11 from East London uh, and there was no way she was ever going back to, 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 to London. Ten minutes later, I'm talking to a lady who hates it. She's come from Bermondsey. She doesn't know why she's still here. 20 years in, she's still here. She hates it. Um, and yet she described then an extraordinary life story of why she had ended up. So um, th- those conversations are very anecdotal and they're very happen chance. And a lot of formal academic research would completely disregard them that, that you know, they're not representative and you haven't gone through the ethics committee. But that is, to me, one of the most pleasurable sides of my background as a journalist, that, that sense of just kind of the unexpected and, and just who happens to be on the street at that time. And then you've pieced that together with, with more formal interviews. You, you do contact the academics. You do interview the, the kind of designers who've tried to reinvent our seasides, the politicians who've thought about the problem for a long time the, and so forth. So, you know, it's the mixing of all those perspectives and how the same place can be talked about in totally different terms. Um, and it's something of, of that richness that as a writer, I just find endlessly fascinating. I think your piece feels really rich and I think one central idea that maybe emerges from it is that the seaside is both a trap and a refuge and it's this tension that compounds the problems with poverty and deprivation that many seaside towns face. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us and and explain which towns it is specifically that you're writing about? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things that I think about the seaside towns is that They've not had the sort of claim on the public national attention in anything like the way that the, you know, the decline of industrial manufacturing regions has had. There's been no narrative. So one of the things as a writer that you think about is is the language and, and the shaping of that narrative. And I came up with two terms that I think are really important. One is the salt fringe. And it's sort of, you know, it's the, it's the corollary of the rust belt. And it is this fringe of ill health, inequal, low, low pay work and enormous inequality in life and expectancy, so health inequality, um, that is evident on all sides of our English coastline. So no matter where you go, east, east, west, north, south, you run into the same conundrum of of this kind of combination of of poor health, low life expectancy and low pay. And that is where I got into this concept of the trap and the refuge. There are two dominant drivers, sort of frameworks for understanding seaside poverty and the deprivation, the acute deprivation that has now been evident in these seaside towns for several decades. And one of them is the trap that, you know, if you're born into places like Skegness or Scarborough, you're surrounded by uh, people who are working in some of the, with some of the lowest average pay. Seaside towns have a, a pattern of low pay. I think Scarborough in 2019 2020 was still had the lowest average pay in the country but you know those those there's various seaside towns that jostle for that for that title as it were 
Um, so even places down in the southeast, which, of course, is so much more prosperous in many terms, you'll find the same sort of pattern of poverty in places like Hastings and East Clacton. Jaywick is actually the poorest place in the country and has been for 20 years. Um, so it doesn't fit into the north-south divide, um, the story of kind of wealth of the south and, and the north be falling behind. Um, so the trap is, you know, kids born into that have, have a real struggle to get out and to get into better paid jobs, to get the kind of qualifications. With low pay, often what is linked in is low educational aspiration, low educational achievement. And it's well known that coastal towns, rural towns have the greatest challenge in terms of educational achievement now. It used to be the inner cities, and actually inner cities are, are performing spectacularly now, particularly the area where I used to live in Hackney, East London. Uh, whereas uh, education is a real challenge in places like Blackpool. Um, uh, but, but you know, a Great Yarmouth would be exactly the same. You know, this is, these are opposite sides of the country, uh, opposite sides of the compass, uh, and yet they share the same issue. So that's the trap. And the other side is the refuge, what I call the refuge. And that is the phenomenon which many coastal uh, towns are deeply familiar with, which is they are neighbouring uh, more prosperous urban centres. Uh, that could be Manchester, it could be Bristol, it could be London. Um, and because those uh, cities have become uh, increasingly hard to find somewhere to live, um, the, the, if you're down on your luck, you've left just left, left prison or you're fleeing domestic violence or you've got issues with substance abuse, if you're looking for somewhere cheap to live, you can drift to the margins, you drift to the edges and you will be able to pick up a cheap one, uh, your studio bedsit in Blackpool within a short time of arriving at the station. Um, and it's well known in Blackpool that, you know, that's what happens. You get these houses in multiple occupation, as they're described. They're former hotels that have been split up into bedsits, which are often really quite small. Um, and um, buy-to-let landlords then rent them out to people uh, often on housing benefit who, um, you know, have things haven't worked out in their lives. So Blackpool, for example, there's a sort of average of about... 5,000 people arriving in Blackpool every year who are dependent on housing benefit or universal credit. So they will uh, be on universal credit um, and uh, a large proportion of them are single males um, with troubled histories. So it completely overloads the local authorities, social services departments, um, substance abuse services, uh, you know, all of the kind of parts of the 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 welfare, welfare state, which are essential to help people put, put lives back together again, um, struggle with the, the level of demand and need. Um, and so that's the kind of the, the last resort, the last great, the last chance. You know, seasides have always been places of second chances. You kind of think, well, I had lovely memories of my holidays there as a kid. So, you know, maybe that's where I can start my life again. And what about that third group? I mean, it's not a nice term for them, but the, the term that's coming to my head is the gentrifiers, the wealthy people that are coming from London or other towns who are buying more expensive properties, potentially second homes. Where do they fit into that picture? Well, this is where I think it gets so complex and so um, so unique. You know, I, I, I don't think that this kind of setup of, of social issues is quite the same anywhere else than on the coastline because we love the sea and even though the sun doesn't shine enough for us to want to stay for two weeks in Blackpool or most of us you know the numbers of people having the two-week classics fun family holiday at an English seaside resort 
collapsed in the course of the 80s with the rise of the package holiday. But we still visit in huge numbers and lots of people given half a chance are only too happy to snap up cheap property as a second home or an Airbnb rental. And so you get this strange paradox. I mean, I've now written several other books about place, but I don't think I've ever encountered a kind of place, the seaside town, which represents such a a kind of complicated combination of social phenomenon going on at the same time. So take a town like Hastings and adjoining St. Leonard's. Uh, You know, Hastings has is the is a really got a lot of issues of you know some really severe deprivation and yet St Leonard's is a, a hugely desirable lovely place to live in which lots of people have moved down from London and are absolutely loving it Margate similarly in 2015 Margate had the fastest rising property prices in the country so those kinds of southeast resorts uh get the London wealth spillover if you like where Londoners can trade in a bit of property in London and, and buy these places up really cheap in comparison. And that gives a picture of kind of inequality, which is so stark and, um, and, and graphic. So take, for example, Western Supermare, um, which is just, just sort of south of Bristol, and the little resort of Clevedon, which is about five or six miles away. The difference in life expectancy between two wards in those towns, you know, the central ward of Weston and the Yale ward of uh, Clevedon, is set for, for a woman is a 17-year gap in life expectancy. And for men, it's a bit less. So the, the, as I travelled around the coastline, I would literally go from, you know, one end of the promenade to the other, and the life expectancy would have dropped 10 years or jumped 10 years. It's almost as if we've left a tide mark around the country of the levels of growing inequality uh, within within uh, within England and kind of the inland areas. So there's something where it's all exposed at the seaside, if you like. That's what my kind of theory was, that this is where you see it really, really sharply. And Ross, bringing you in here on this, I know, you know, the think tank that you work for has got a huge amount of expertise on the different issues that places around the country face. What do you make of Madeline's analysis? Do you feel that it is true that this, in a way, seaside towns kind of represent the bigger trends that are going on across the UK in a really, really contained environment? And also, how different are the problems that seaside towns face to other areas of the country that are facing challenges, for example, in the north of England and the Midlands? Well, issues to do with education outcomes, you know, health inequalities and that sort of thing. Yes, you do get it in a lot of other parts of the countries, but in seaside towns, it seems to be a lot more significant. It doesn't particularly matter if in the north or the south or the east or the west, what matters more is that you're on sort of around the coast of England. And as soon as you get to get out there then that's when you start to see these really stark inequalities in health and educational outcomes and you've got people from different parts of the country more prosperous parts of the country who are moving there and it's sort of you know pushing down on the living standards of local residents so i do think it's something that is just a more exacerbated national trend where you go to different parts of the country particularly you know inner cities might be one where on the same street you might have people who live in million pound houses and then you've got real severe hardship and deprivation just across the road or a little bit further away but the thing that's particular about seaside towns is that they aren't big you know they're towns by nature and if you go to a lot of other towns in this country sort of similarly sized 
geographical areas definitely looking at you know at a national level you don't you tend to not get the same level of inequality in different towns so i think yeah there is something very particular about seaside and i think sort of from a more policy point of view it's quite difficult because sort of like madeline was pointing to earlier you're getting a lot more policy attention definitely in the last few years about parts of the north that have deindustrialized historically go about 20 years and it was in the cities and that sort of thing but seaside towns have never really had the same level of policy attention or political attention. But Madeleine also touches on, you know, if you go back to 2016 and the Brexit referendum, that lack of attention, but broad social problems building up over a prolonged period of time did have a political impact. But thinking from more of a policy focus, again, there's an important point to all it's about seaside towns and levelling up you know, this big agenda which came about in 2019. But it's weird with that, I think, because it still feels as if people have people are struggling when they talk about it to define what leveling up is actually about and what it's supposed to be what it's trying to achieve you know the government published a big 300 page document setting that out but when you actually read it what you read in just another essentially another iteration of regional development policy which we've had loads and loads of over decades and decades gone by but with a real focus on poorer and left behind areas but the political salad big picture narrative that you'll read about in the media is still very much inequalities between north and south red wall versus blue wall and all of these different things whereas actually when you think about seaside towns they have a lot of the same struggles that if you go to those traditional parts of the north that have been well documented throughout the press they have a lot of those problems often more pronounced but it doesn't get the same level of attention in the media or in policy circles as well so that's you think about that over a much longer history 34 years when you go back to when domestic tourism was dying out a little bit people were going abroad a lot more cheap commercial air flight everyone wants to go to spain all of a sudden and that's when the problems start it hasn't had the same level of attention and that has sort of compounded and sort of built up a lot of the problems that you're seeing today. After the break we'll talk more about Britain's complex relationship with its seaside towns. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print and right now a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now. 
this is a question probably for both of you, but why is it that you think that they, these seaside towns have been... Chris Whitty obviously wrote his big report about health inequalities in seaside towns, but it doesn't seem that sparked a bigger conversation. Ross, do you have a view on that from a policy angle? I think probably less from a policy angle. I think it's difficult because one part of it says that less, and I don't have the population figures to hand, but less people live in seasides. And a lot of the people who work in and around policy and politics, they tend to spend their time in the bigger cities. A lot of people, they live and work in London, Manchester, Birmingham, all of these places. And you might occasionally go to the seaside for a couple of days every now and then across the year when the weather's nice. But the extent to which a lot of people who work around here spend a significant amount of time there, definitely you'll get people who've been born up in seaside communities, but are then left. And as much as a lot of people always like to cling on to their roots, I think there's a point where if you live in a bigger city for a prolonged period of time, then you do assimilate into that culture a little bit more and you will start to see things a little bit differently. But I also think it just doesn't have the resonance and it's difficult to pinpoint exactly why it is other than just observing that it doesn't have the same level of resonance as you do when you have sort of Northern and Midlands de-industrial towns. But it's in itself is quite interesting you don't because like Madeline picks up quite a lot. There's a specific nostalgia about the seaside in England and the coast and you know the memories that people have and the vision that you have of it of years gone by and that's the same sort of romanticism that you have a lot with you know industry and heavy industry and a sense of community and you know it's the same sort of thing but it doesn't have the political and policy represent and it's very difficult to pinpoint why um so yeah I don't know if Madeline's got anything to add but um yeah so I, I I've got a couple of points to make I think that um there's been a lack of political representation. So to some extent, if you think of the way in which the inner city uh, grabbed the imagination in the 1980s or the deindustrialization, the kind of conflict over the miners' strike in the end of mining and coal and steel, I think all of these had a kind of narrative framing both by political leadership and by creative leadership, writers, playwrights, filmmakers. And I think this, that the, the lack of political representation is interesting. By and large, seaside economies tend to be dominated by small, medium-sized enterprises. They tend to be family-run businesses. They're bed and breakfasts, they're hotels, they're cafes, restaurants. And actually, they were probably quite centre-leaning, right, conservative with a small C, until the 80s. So there's very, very little trade union engagement in those kinds of sectors. So if you think back to some of the ways in which the narrative was shaped in the 80s around the end of industrial you know the deindustrialization and the closing of the pits etc trade unions played a really crucial role to describing what was happening and to alerting people however much people agreed or disagreed with with the, the strike action but alerting people to the fact that communities were being destroyed because that's what was at stake is is at stake in, in some seaside towns now and was at stake then. And writers and filmmakers could pick that up. So that's one thing, that the lack of a political narrative around it. Um, the other aspect I would also say is that that political lack of political representation works at a more local level. So lots of seaside... What a point made to me was that a lot of seaside towns within counties, which are very rural, so their centre of local government can be 40 miles away. North Allerton uh, is the is centre for North Yorkshire, so it's... 50 miles 40 50 miles away from Scarborough so to what extent does the Shire County Council really really feel passionately committed and deeply concerned about the seaside you know, they've got a lot of other preoccupations which are very very different around rural areas and 
and all of that represents. So, so there's a, a kind of struggle at, at that level as well. And then to, get, to go to the point about the political framing, the seaside towns themselves haven't really wanted to squeal. I mean, the, the definition of, by definition, England is a, has a lot of seaside resorts something like 140. So there's always been this competitiveness and the rivalry between them. So they're all sort of talking about how wonderful and beautiful they are and the beaches are beautiful. The last thing they want to do is start complaining about their desperate struggle to hold things together, to keep things clean and tidy when there's, you know, large amount of homelessness or uh, drug abuse. So, you know, the narrative, the, the cliched narrative of it's grim up north, you know, that kind of thing, which northerners absolutely detest, but which has, you know, emerged as a narrative in the 1980s about stirring a nation's conscience. Well, you seaside towns go a long way to keep up the facade that everything's fine. I, you know, I think it's it's been very, very difficult for them to land on a narrative, which is to say, hey, this isn't working. You know, we can't keep these places looking pretty and, and get you all to come and visit and cope with the kinds of social problems that are arriving on our doorstep every day. So um, so I think that there's that challenge. And I then, to, to pick up Ross's point about nostalgia, you know, it's not like we don't know about these problems. We do. We've watched film after film after film about them. And Sam Mendes' recent film, The Empire of Light, was a, was a classic kind of demonstration of the way in which we have a sort of affection for the, for the ruin in the making. I mean, he, he portrays his whole film in the collapsing, beautiful building, of the Art Deco building, Dreamland, which has now been renovated. But in the early 1980s, the seagulls were coming in and walking around on the tabletops and it was all collapsing. And that's what he films. And that sense of a kind of a place haunted by an incredibly joyous and vibrant past. There's something that sort of appeals to, to our nostalgia without mobilising commitment and action and this needs to change type thing. You know, we're not thinking, God, this is awful. We need to do something about it. We're thinking, oh, look at the look at the crumbling Art Deco architecture. Isn't it fantastic? So I think the nostalgia has um, crippled the political debate as well. And Madeline, I wondered, did that manifest in the people you were speaking to when you were asking about their struggles with the darker side of living there? Were they, were they open about their financial struggles? Were they open about the poverty? Or did they themselves seem closed off to those kind of conversations? No, no, I, th I think it varied a lot, but I would say that to varying degrees, everyone I spoke to, apart from in Padstow, <laughs> in Cornwall, everybody was deeply concerned about the issues all around them. And one of the kind of recurrent uh, themes, actually, was the um, deep commitment that seaside towns inspire. If you've moved to a seaside town, you, you often tend to be very, very passionate about it. And the levels of social, of in, community engagement and commitment are, are, are kind of extraordinary. It seemed to me um, that places like Hastings is now well known for all sorts of community endeavours. But a lot of the people that have moved down to Margate from London have got involved in all sorts of initiatives around the community. So they, you know, they, they inspire great love and a lot of effort to try and deal with things. But it was clear in Blackpool and Morecambe that people were also desperate. These were some of the people I was talking to were running services of various kinds. Citizens Advice Bureau, for example, just could not believe the level of demand that they were having to deal with and couldn't believe that, that it just seemed to no longer had COVID finished than, than the cost of living crisis, crisis was kicking in 
in a way that um, they they kind of was like, what's going on? What's happened? Don't people understand what we're dealing with here? Uh, and it was it was really painful, the sense of kind of of overwhelm, really, you know, um, deeply committed to, to trying to do things and finding it increasingly difficult. Ross, I think something that's interesting about Seaside Towns that Madeline kind of picks up on in her piece is the kind of artistic regeneration that we've seen in a lot of the areas. A lot of efforts, for example, in Margate and Hastings have focused on bringing in big art galleries um, and things like that. What do you make of that as a policy to try and um, transform these towns? And is it working? I think in general, it's quite a good thing because one of the things that this country is good at is we've got a very strong creative we're very good at creative industries and it's a massive exporter all over the world i think people for all positive reasons as well people enjoy getting involved in things relating to their community and things relating to art and it's good but then where i suggest it has its limit is you can only really have so many people who would be employed in that sort of thing if you've got new art galleries that are cropping up in different seaside towns the actual economic reach in terms of you know employment and job creation that they might be able to have directly is limited because it would really only be the people who work in the facilities or people who do some sort of outreach who go into the communities of potentially schools as well. The areas themselves are a lot bigger and the sort of broader systemic economic problems these places face would mean that you wouldn't be able to solve it entirely sort of through artistic regeneration. But that being said, I think it's definitely a positive, but I'm a little bit sceptical about its limits and how far it can really transform and turn around a, an economy. And, and what would that more transformational effort look like? What would it really mean to level up these areas? Well, I think there's a few different things. I think, well, there are a few different things. I think some of the things that Madeline has touched on in her piece are absolutely critical. So you think about poor educational outcomes. You've got really really low rates of attainment amongst people who live in these areas and grow up in these areas and then the people who do tend to achieve see that they haven't got the job opportunities right in front of them so they go somewhere else that in itself is a problem you need to sort of level off educational attainment if you you know if you have any if you want any hope of either attracting inward investment diversifying the economy so that it's not so dependent on one specific thing um and yeah keeping the people keeping people so i think education is a big part of it as is health, like you were mentioning earlier about Chris Whitty a few years ago, wrote a really big report. And if you go to different part, you know, diff across different CTR communities as well, you've got really drastic different inequalities and different outcomes in terms of health. One of the things that I think is particularly difficult when it comes to health is when you go to areas that are particularly poorer and they've got higher levels of health inequality, one of the things that they tend to struggle with, obviously, you know, as a lot of as a lot of public services do, but is resourcing. But the way that we fund public services doesn't necessarily match onto the need of an area, rather the cost, which means that what's difficult really prioritise prevention, you know, so early interventions. And one of the things as well that Chris Whitty picked up on that report as well is when you've got really, really granular local level problems to do with health, you don't necessarily have the data that's available to sort of bring in those early interventions, which one can save you money sort of in the long term, but it can get, can reduce those health inequalities, um, make people healthier and that, you know, make people, make people healthier, make people happier. And that in itself is something that could be, there's evidence out there. And we've done some work on this recently, which shows that good health within a local area has a positive impact on productivity, increases the local, out, the output of a local area and can help draw investment as well. So I think education and health are two of the important ones, but aside from that, I think there's probably two more and that's one is transport. If you live in an area which is hard to get to, not only it's very difficult to convince investors to come to an area if it's going to cost them a lot more money to transport whatever it needs into that area. And also for people to, you know, sort of 
leave and you know to export and that sort of thing as well if he adds an additional cost then that's one and i think the other one is housing and i think this is one that keep it keeps coming back up time and time again but i think the issues around seaside towns and housing there's a few separate things going on but i think it's one where you have to sort of look bigger than just the towns themselves and look at other places so one of the things that madeline's piece talks a little bit about is you know the, the down from london sort of the incomers and people coming from different areas quite often Obviously, people want a bit of space and, you know, everyone loves the seaside, so it's nice to live there. But a lot of people are being push, pushed out of the major cities purely because of the fact that they can't afford to live in the major cities. In an age like today, where people can work, in, you know, increasingly people can work remotely, they can work from home. It's sort of, it seems a lot more realistic that people can do that in the post-COVID era. But then you've also got the existing housing stock within seaside areas. And there was a study that was published earlier this year in March, granted it wasn't looking at seaside towns but it was looking at the effect of developing large sort of market rate apartment blocks in lower income parts of america and what it found is actually when you do that it reduces the housing costs for people on the lowest incomes who live in those areas because these new developments they absorb the higher income residents who may potentially come from other places um, so the down from london types um, whose influx has sort of pushed prices up um, which means that those people were moving into you know those apartments and that accommodation which you know rather than pushing prices downwards onto the lower income existing residents compounding their deprivation further it reduces the rents you know it helps um so i think that's another one as well so those they're four they're big ones they're big challenges and i think it's going to take a lot of bold action to actually you know deliver on them and improve them but i think they are the big four that you see i, I would add one more i think up. i think there's one more ross which is digital connection good digital connection. I think that's absolutely critical. So if you're going to get, you know, businesses investing, etc., they need really good digital connectivity. Definitely. So and I'd say as well, if you think about digital, digital to link it back to another thing as well. So if you link that back to education, you know, you may not necessarily have much of a, you know, the education system in a small seaside town might be, might be quite weak, but you know, say, children who are in those areas and they were struggling being able to access resources so that they can online you know bbc bite size and to access tutors online and that sort of thing can be quite a helpful thing that obviously if you've got if you've got difficulties around internet and broadband and digital then it's going to make it a lot harder to do that so yeah that is a good fifth i do agree madeline just a note to end on the picture that your piece paints is a really loving one of seaside towns but it is also quite a bleak perspective on on where they'll be going next and we had a really interesting comment left when we published this online I don't know if you've seen it on your piece from a reader who lives in Hastings who kind of feels that in Hastings particularly the regeneration efforts are really successfully underway and raises the possibility that in 30 years time Hastings could be the Shoreditch that we see today what what do you make of that? Well, I'm not sure that I'm completely pessimistic. I, I think that would be a misreading of my writing. I think that the, the book is sort of saying, we, you know, there's, we could go either of, uh, of several ways. I, I think also, so I'd say that's one reservation. The second is that you cannot lump all seaside towns in together. They, although they share a lot of the same characteristics, clearly Hastings is in a different place to Skegness or Ilfracombe. So you have to break it down. What might happen in Bridlington may not happen in Ilfra Coombe, even though they may both share some, some characteristics. So can I see a future for Hastings in which it's like Shoreditch? I can actually. I mean, Shoreditch was a gentrification process that I lived very close to, so I could see it happening. Um, and a lot of people, like Ross has already talked about, you know, got pushed out of, of Shoreditch over the course of the early 2000s, the late 1990s. 
Um, now, currently, Hastings has some of the poorest areas in the southeast in parts of Hastings. And could they be forced out, moved on as Hastings becomes a new Shoreditch? Yeah, all of, all of that is, is, is entirely possible in Hastings. I don't think something of that ilk is going to happen in Skegness or Bridlington. Um, but, you know, there, there are really trailblazing and very, very exciting developments on coastlines all around the country of what where really determined communities are trying to pull together. I mean, my favourite is um, a West Somerset town called Watch It, um, where uh, a group of women started working 10 years ago and they've launched this fabulous art centre, cafe. It's, you know, a kind of thriving hub of culture and all sorts of things. And I think everything that Ross was saying about a sense of pride in place and dignity um, kind of is illustrated by this fabulous building, which is now being um, is up for a uh, possible architectural prize. Um, it's getting national attention. You know, they put Watch It on the national map. Um, is that enough to turn around a town where there's, you know, all the sort of issues around low social mobility, low educational achievement? Well, we're going to have a clearer sense of that in, you know, 10 years time, but it's a good bet. Um, so I don't think there's one bu silver bullet. It's going to involve a number of different sort of policy interventions. And I think housing is, is as Ross said, is such a driver of this. Um, so Blackpool has been trying to get more powers to control housing in multiple occupation and re being rebuffed repeatedly. I think one of the problems is that they have a unique problem, a lot of coastal towns, and yet the kind of central government legislation doesn't recognise the uniqueness of their position and won't give them the powers that might be effective in their local area. So there's a real issue here about power and who has it and to what extent does the power, that, those that have the power, really understand that kind of unique and, and really complicated set of interacting problems, gentrification plus the trap problem plus the refuge problem. And it seems sort of extraordinary that all those three are going on in the same places, but they are. And how do you tease those apart to make vibrant, viable communities is a challenge that just hasn't been framed properly. So we don't know whether we could actually crack it because it hasn't yet, I think, really kind of landed in the political debate. I mean, how many politicians have a deep understanding of Blackpool's challenges? Up until the early 2000s, all the political establishment had to go to Blackpool every autumn for one of the party conferences. But then the hotels were deemed unsanitary and unfit or wherever it was. And, you know, they, they, they've not been there. But that was very, very good. That was a good thing that they all had to get on a train and uh, experience Blackpool, as I did as I was a reporter back in the 80s. I went to Blackpool for party conferences. And it, it was good for people to get out of London and to encounter that. But I think it's sort of dropped off the radar. People are just a lot of politicians and the media just think, oh, Blackpool, you know, we've had that problem for 20 years. You know, it's a kind of apathy. And I've said that was my last question. I promise this is my last one. If seaside towns are a place that symbolises everything that's going on in the UK, what does that say about where we are more broadly as a country? And I'll probably come to you for that, Ross, in terms of the cost of living crisis, in terms of deepening inequality and those broader trends. Well, I think it says a lot that, like Madeline was saying, that we've we've sort of had examples like Blackpool is the one which always comes up, but it's sort of been a case for twenty years time, twenty five years time, and we sort of we sort of in a very pessim taken a very pessimistic time for a second. We've sort of just accepted that this is the way things are, and we haven't sort of made any real effort to to do anything about it. But I do think one thing is that telling these positive stories um, 
is one of the things that can sort of help these local areas overcome that difficulty in building a narrative can help get a little bit of political representation and I also buy completely what Madeline was saying about these areas they know what their problems are but they haven't particularly had the powers given to them to actually overcome it and if you look sort of at the minute what's going on with the devolution debate and the mayors is all sort of centered around city region economic growth um it's not something which at the minute is particularly making its way around the coastal community uh, out to the coast i know that like cornwall i think is potentially going to get uh, a combined authority but more or less it's based around building around the hubs of birmingham manchester leeds the big cities what you probably need is to do to tackle the problems in those areas you know those areas are going to get more powers to do what they need to do they have their own problems that's great but you kind of probably have to offer a different policy perspective or a different offer to other places like seaside towns that face very very different problems and do the two simultaneously because like you say they start from very different starting positions and they have very different challenges and if you over focus on one particular issues in the country which is i feel like what we've chosen to do is to focus on city regions and trying to drive growth there and you're not doing it on the other then all you're really going to do is create new inequalities between new sets of places and in the worst case you get sort of like what we've got with Blackpool, which you've got 25 years and everyone's known that there's problems and we've made no effort to do anything about it. And it's only going to get worse and there'll be people 15, 20 years down the line thinking this is still going on and we still haven't done anything. You've potentially had political opportunities dozens and dozens of times down the line, but every opportunity, if you decide that what it's easier to do is to turn a blind eye and focus on a different problem instead, things just get worse. So I think it does say a little bit about our own priorities and potentially in our ability or our belief that you know ourselves as sort of a society as a policy you know politics to actually you know identify problems and deal with them head on no matter how big or structural they are it's a bit of a representation of that and on that very positive note we'll end thank you so much to madeline and ross for joining us if you enjoyed this podcast then grab a copy of our latest issue of prospect magazine which includes madeline's excellent essay plus our cover story the prince versus the press by tom lamont which tells the inside story of the bitter battle between harry and the newspapers that hounded him and and how the phone hackers of the past have switched sides to help him there's also writing from laura barton david willett donald mcintyre imogen west knights and many more Goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brealey. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it'll make you laugh, sometimes it'll make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode.